welcome to GEMcast. My name is Christina Shenby, and today I am joined by a very special guest who is Professor of Emergency Medicine at the University of Maryland. You have probably heard him speak on other podcasts about EKGs, chest pain workups, low-risk chest pain rule-outs, etc. He has also written a number of books on EKGs as well as other general emergency medicine texts, and I'm talking, of course, about Amal Matu. If you have not been to any of his talks at ASAP, I highly recommend it. Much like my pre-pregnancy genes, however, they are standing room only, so get there early. I certainly go pretty much every year to his EKG talks. Today, we will be discussing acute coronary syndromes in older adults. And just to define a couple terms, when we say older adults, we mean 65 and over, and acute coronary syndrome encompasses STEMIs and and STEMIs, so patients who have either a STEMI or a positive troponin without a diagnostic EKG. So without further ado, let's jump in. Amal, welcome to GEMcast. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. I just want to say that I think this is this podcast you're doing is really great. It's a very valuable resource, and hoping we're hoping that this gets a lot more information out to the providers about the importance of elder care, not only in the U.S., but everywhere. It's, a, it's become such a big issue everywhere. Well, thank you. And I wanted to take a minute before we dive into our topic to just highlight your brand new book that just came out literally last week or something on geriatric emergencies, a discussion-based review. It's a great book. It starts each chapter with a case and then a discussion among the different editors and authors. What prompted you to write about geriatric emergencies? Credit should probably go primarily to Peter Rosen and also Shemai Grossman. Peter and Shemai are putting together a series of books, actually, which is a discussion-based review series of books. And the first one they did was cardiology, and they discussed cardiology cases. And then I think they did one on ethics, and I think this is the third book. In terms of how I got involved in this, I've always had an interest in geriatric emergency medicine. It was my first love and first area of interest, even in medical school, to the point that I thought about just doing EMIM or IM followed by a geriatric fellowship. And it, it turned out that I fell more in love with emergency medicine, but I discovered I could pursue geriatrics. And then I got into EKGs and cards and stuff like that. But this has always been kind of my my first real academic interest, geriatric emergency medicine. And so Peter had come to visit our program eight years ago as he was starting the series. And I told him that it would be really great to do this geriatric book. And then I thought he forgot about it, but then lo and behold, a few years ago, he emailed me and said, all right, it's time to do this book. And so he allowed me to be the first uh, editor on this, and Shemai and Peter uh, have uh, done a lot of work on this book also. And so that's how I got involved in this book, and I hope a lot of people read it and, and learn from it. Well, thanks. I certainly have enjoyed the chapters that I've read so far. And for listeners, if you are interested in geriatrics and emergency medicine, there are tons of ways to get involved. So I actually did emergency medicine residency and then a fellowship in geriatric EM. There are only four or five places in the country that offer it. So if you're interested, it is out there. Well, let's dive into our topic. We are going to be talking about acute coronary syndromes in older adults. Amal, first of all, what are the demographics of acute coronary syndrome? Is this mainly a disease of middle-aged folks or older adults? Who gets this? 
Well, unfortunately, we're starting to realize that everybody gets it. Uh, <laughs> young people get it more than we ever realized before. We could do a whole separate podcast on young people having MIs, but definitely age is the most powerful predictor of coronary disease. Uh, probably about 85% of all deaths from coronary disease occur in, in elderly patients. And age is also the most powerful predictor of dying once you have your MI. So age plays a huge role in this in terms of developing coronary disease, developing MI, and having bad outcomes from MI. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's no surprise that most patients that have acute coronary syndrome or MI or die from MI are elderly patients. But uh, just, I guess, as a digression, we are recognizing this more and more in young people as well. And then in the textbooks, we read about ACS presenting with this classic sudden onset, crushing chest pain, radiating to the arm with some shortness of breath and diaphoresis. But of course, most of us who have been doing this for even not that long have seen patients who ended up having STEMIs or NSTEMIs, but who came in only with vomiting or dyspnea or some fatigue. So how does the presentation differ between older and younger patients? Well, elderly certainly don't read the textbooks for most every disease mm -hmm. that's out there. And, and generally speaking, it's interesting that most textbooks that we've all read, it's improved a little bit lately, but most textbooks are largely based on studies that were done years ago in which elderly patients are specifically excluded. So the classic presentations that we've all learned about largely have excluded patients that are over 65 or 70. So that classic description that you just gave, which is great for TV shows, it, it just doesn't occur in, in real life. So a atypical is the norm, as they say. In contrast to that substernal crushing or pressure type of sensation with the radiation, painless MI becomes more and more common the older we get. And studies have said that over the age of 65, only about 50% of patients will have pain. And then over the age of 85, only a third of patients will have any pain. The majority have painless MIs. Now, painless MI doesn't mean that they are asymptomatic MIs. And I'm not a big believer in asymptomatic ACS. I think pretty much everyone has some symptoms. It's just not recognized because people are always looking for pain. So what is the alternative symptom besides pain, or also known as anginal equivalent? The most common anginal equivalent is shortness of breath. So I always tell our residents, if your patient comes in with shortness of breath and you don't have a really obvious cause, you don't hear wheezing everywhere, and it's a patient with a history of bad asthma or something like that, if a person comes in with shortness of breath and you don't have a good reason for it, you ought to be getting that 12 lead just as quickly as if that older patient came in clutching their chest. So shortness of breath by far is the most common anginal equivalent in the elderly. But the older you get, the even more atypical it can get. Things like confusion. You know, I'm, I'm sure no one out there has ever seen an elderly patient present with confusion. But if you ever do, you've, you've got to think about it. Get that EKG, neurologic presentation, syncope, stroke, and also, as you mentioned, the, the nausea or vomiting without a good reason. That's also a good time to think about it. Over the age of 85, it becomes so atypical that just fatigue and loss of appetite can sometimes be a common anginal equivalent that you have to think about. And, and I'm not by any means 
trying to say that you send all these patients to the cath lab, but all I would want to convey to the listeners is when you get those presentations, at least check a 12 lead. That's all I'm asking. Just check a 12 lead and go from there. So a lot of different things that could be the anginal equivalent. And I just wanted to comment on, you mentioned that studies largely excluded adults. That is a problem across the board in medicine. So a lot of cancer studies, for example, have excluded older adults, but who gets cancer? It's older adults primarily on average. Obviously, there are certain cancers that are more prevalent in young people, but this is a huge problem. So for those of you who are doing research, if there's a way to include older patients, that can be so important, especially for these disease processes that preferentially exist in older patients. Sure. And now you mentioned we should have a low threshold for patients coming in to get an EKG. Does the EKG interpretation vary at all based on age, or is there any change in likelihood of finding EKG abnormalities and NSTEMIs as we age? Well, fortunately, most of the time you will get the ST elevation or the clear-cut ST depression. So most of the time it does work out, but it does become a bit more difficult because oftentimes the elderly patients will have some confounding findings. For example, they, they more often have a baseline left bundle or pacemaker or LVH, or maybe they've got prior MI findings like uh, chronic Q waves or flip T waves as a baseline. So that can make it a bit more difficult. And as we get older, we tend to develop more PVCs, just asymptomatic PVCs. You don't need to do anything about them except maybe just make sure the electrolytes are fine. As we get older, we develop a first degree AV block. That's just a normal part of aging. Left axis deviation is just a normal part of aging. And the the one thing that I should add also, which well, certainly does make things more difficult, is that as we get older, we're also less likely to develop ST segment elevation, mm -hmm. maybe because to some extent we lose myocardial mass, or I'm not really sure exactly why that is, but there are a couple of cardiology studies out there that have shown that elderly patients, if they have a full acute coronary occlusion, they won't necessarily develop that full one millimeter of ST elevation. So in other words, let's say you're in the cath lab and you just tie off a coronary artery for the heck of it. In a young person, you're probably gonna see two, three, four millimeters of ST elevation, but in elderly patients, you can't rely on seeing that degree of ST elevation. So as a result, elderly are much more likely to have non-ST elevation ACS than younger patients. So never ever blow off that half millimeter ST elevation in V2, V3, V4. You know, even a half millimeter in a couple of contiguous leads can be the manifestation of the acute coronary occlusion. So stay, stay really focused on even those subtle findings. So they could be having an actual transmural infarction, but not have the classic ST elevation or maybe just have a sub-millimeter, you know, a whiff of ST elevation on the EKG. Exactly. And your computer won't pick it up because mm. your computer is only programmed to read STEMI or, or full-blown ischemia if it sees a full one millimeter. So if you have a half millimeter or 0.9 millimeters of ST elevation, your computer's programmed to call it nonspecific and not uh, STEMI or ST segment depression. Normally, you expect the computer to read it as ischemia, but if it's only 0.9 millimeters of ST depression in two or three contiguous leads, it'll call it nonspecific. Interesting. So let's say we have this low threshold for getting an EKG. We're vigilant about looking for the subtle ST elevation or depression changes. Does the ED workup 
for older patients differ at all from younger adults? Well, the main thing that I would want to emphasize is just to have a lower threshold for getting the 12-lead ECG and really scrutinizing it and also have a, a lower threshold for maybe initiating uh, the beginnings of a workup, getting serial troponins on patients that have those nonspecific type of, of findings. And then as far as management, does that differ for older patients? I, I imagine it probably does, but should it differ? Uh, for example, once we have the EKG with some non-STEMI ischemic changes or a positive troponin, is there any difference in the management for these patients? For the most part, the management tends to stay the same. And one of the problems that occurs is that patients tend to be treated less aggressively purely based on age. And that's that's a big problem. Many of the medications that we normally want to give are not used. Aspirin, for example, studies have shown that elderly are less likely to get aspirin. Mm -hmm. Elderly are less likely to get thrombolytics even when they qualify. Elderly are even less likely to go for cath purely mm -hmm. based on age, it seems. So don't decrease your aggressiveness just purely based on age. But for the most part, it, it really should be the same. The couple of caveats I would suggest are being careful about beta blockers. In fact, one of the, I'll say, relative contraindications to using beta blockers early is older age because elderly are more likely to develop cardiogenic shock when they have their MI. So don't rush to give routine beta blockers in the elderly. You know, let them do it upstairs after the patients determine their hemodynamic stability after 12 or 18 hours or so. There's no rush to do it. Same thing with nitrates. In general, just assume every elderly patient you see is hypovolemic. They are. Uh, they tend to have less thirst. Mm -hmm. They don't keep up their hydration as well. And so they're more likely to drop their pressure from nitrates. I'm not saying don't give them, but just have a bag of IV fluids hanging and ready to go uh, if you're going to use nitrates. And then the other really key point is that if you're going to use G2B3A receptor antagonists or low molecular weight heparin, both of those need to be based or dosed on renal function. And a lot of elderly patients, even with the seemingly normal creatinine, are relatively renally insufficient. Mm -hmm. And so before you ever judge what a renal function is in an elderly patient, don't use the serum creatinine. Use the creatinine clearance. Just calculate the creatinine clearance. Go to Google, type up creatinine clearance. It'll calculate it for you. And if the patient has a creatinine clearance less than 30, that patient needs a lower dose of the G2B3 inhibitor or a lower dose of the low molecular weight heparin. If you don't use creatinine clearance and you just base it on the creatinine, studies have shown that you will probably end up overdosing your patients on either of those two medications. And that overdose, even when just one too much, one dose too much in the emergency department, that's actually been shown to significantly increase in hospital morbidity. Mm -hmm. So always base your dosing of those two medications on creatinine clearance and not the serum creatinine. Mm -hmm. So most of the time, the treatment shouldn't differ. I pulled some numbers before our, our talk today on how treatment does actually differ. Um, so patients who, for example, are coming in with a STEMI, if they have atypical, so chest pain-free symptoms, they receive fibrinolysis or PCI 37% of the time compared with 67% of the time for people who had the typical chest pain. You're exactly right. People without chest pain were less likely to receive an aspirin. 
And not surprisingly, mortality is higher in those patients who have atypical symptoms. So for example, in older women presenting with chest pain in an MI, the mortality is 13%, but in those without chest pain, it's 21%, so almost twice as high. And for men, it's 7% in those with chest pain and 22% for those without it. So a lot higher mortality. And you could certainly surmise that maybe the people who lack chest pain, they have more underlying disease pathology. They've had longstanding diabetes. Their neurons are not working as effectively. But certainly the percent receiving PCI who come in without chest pain is significantly lower. So I would assume that contributes a certain amount to mortality as well. Sure, definitely. Great points. I'm going to try to summarize what you mentioned, and then I'll bring in some other numbers at the end. So age is the number one risk factor for coronary artery disease, and 85% of deaths from MI are in older adults. Unfortunately, studies have largely excluded older adults when it comes to looking at the symptoms of ACS, and atypical is the norm. So patients over 65, up to 50% of them come in with chest pain, and those over 80, about 30% come in with chest pain. And actually, while we're on that topic, I have another study by some folks here at UNC, Seth Glickman and Matt Scholar and others. They looked at a bunch of patients coming in with STEMIs. Now, you would think a STEMI, they're going to have some chest pain. But the same trend is true for STEMIs. Patients 60 to 69, about 80% have chest pain. 70s to 79, about 70%. And then the over 80 crowd, about 50% have chest pain. So even with a STEMI, you may not have chest pain. And then you mentioned that the most common angina equivalent is dyspnea. And, you know, a lot of our EDs, they have triage lab protocols or workup protocols. So if somebody comes in with chest pain, they're supposed to get an EKG within 10 minutes. Whereas for shortness of breath, which as we've talked about, can clearly be an angina equivalent, many of the times those protocols don't exist. But dyspnea, weakness, altered mental status, abdominal pain, I don't think we mentioned, syncope, vomiting, confusion, fatigue, these can all be angina equivalents in this older age group. And then we talked about the EKG. You said many may have underlying baseline abnormalities such as a first-degree AV block, a left axis deviation, and they're also less likely to develop actual ST elevations. So we should have a low threshold to get an EKG and then a troponin in these patients. Finally, treatment. You mentioned not using beta blockers as early because of the risk of cardiogenic shock. Being careful with the uh, nitro or at least having some fluids ready since they may tend to drop their blood pressure. And then dosing the G2B3 inhibitors or Lovenox based on creatinine clearance, not just the creatinine. And that has to do with the fact that older adults tend to have less muscle mass, so their creatinine should be lower in general. So if it's a little bit high, that actually can represent significantly reduced creatinine clearance. Anything else that I missed? No, I think that's a fantastic summary. I hope this uh, information gets out there and and people think about these things as they're taking care of their elder patients with uh, ACS. Well, Amal, thank you again so much for being on GEMcast. It's been a pleasure to have you. I look forward to attending your talks again at ASAP this year. Thanks again. All right. Thanks a lot, Christine.
As always, I will put references on the show notes at gempodcast.com. Feel free to go there and leave a comment. I know the first time I heard this information and these numbers, I felt some vertigo from my paradigm shifting in terms of how I thought about chest pain and ACS in older adults. So I'm hoping this will be useful for you. If there are other topics you'd like to hear about, feel free to send me a tweet at gempodcast or leave a comment on the website. Thanks. Thank you.